Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and by the Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in the Historico Galley section of Melbourne, Florida. It's also made possible by Florida's Space Coast Office of Tourism, representing destinations from Titusville to Cocoa Beach to Melbourne Beach. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, on the web at myfloridahistory.org. I'm Ben Broatmarkle, and coming up on the program, the collected materials of folklorist, author, and activist Stetson Kennedy are now at the University of Florida in Gainesville. I'm a great believer in oral history because uh, I call it the dictatorship of the, the footnote. Uh, the academicians uh, are quoting each other you know, instead of uh, going out and getting first-hand primary source material. We'll look at the Civil War letters of future Florida Governor Francis P. Fleming. He volunteered and and was rolled in with the 2nd Florida uh, Infantry Company, which fought with the Army of Northern Virginia. So they weren't fighting in Florida. He actually spent time uh, in the uh, the Northeast, in Virginia, fighting with Lee's Army. And talk with Gilbert King, Pulitzer Prize-winning author of Devil in the Grove, Thurgood Marshall, The Groveland Boys, and The Dawn of a New America. All that ahead on Florida Frontiers. Done spent my last three cents Mailing my letter to the president Didn't make a show, I didn't make a dance So I'm swinging over to this independent chain Stetson Kennedy, writing his name in Stetson Kennedy, writing his name in Folklorist, author, and activist Stetson Kennedy was born in Jacksonville in 1916 and died in St. Augustine in 2011. Researchers are celebrating the fact that most of Stetson Kennedy's papers and other materials are now in one place. Kennedy's widow, Sandra Parks, says that Stetson wanted his work to be housed at the University of Florida in Gainesville. In 1996, uh, Stetson sold his, his then papers to the University of South Florida, along with many of his foreign edition books that are quite rare and things we cannot find anymore. Uh, and at the time, Stetson had hoped that his papers would go to the University of Florida. And there were really several reasons for that. Uh, Stetson had been a student at the University of Florida. He and Sam Proctor, who is the who started the Oral History Center there, uh, were friends years ago, back when they were both college boys. Uh, And most significantly, the WPA papers are there, papers of Zora Hurston's are there, papers of Marjorie Rawlings are there, and he had hoped that what he has amassed since he sold the first collection to the University of South Florida, would go to UF. While the extensive collection of Stetson Kennedy materials being transferred from the University of South Florida have been carefully archived, the University of Florida is also processing dozens of unorganized boxes from Stetson Kennedy's home. Sandra Parks says that every scrap of paper must be gone through to ensure that important items are not discarded. My biggest frustration is about a month before Stetson died, I asked him, where did you put the letter from Dr. Martin Luther King? 
I had begged him for the eight years we were together to please put it in the safety deposit box. And he would never do that. So about a month before he died, he pointed to his legal documents file and said, it's in there. Well, a few days after Stetson died, I went to that box. And I've had two other people go through the box just in case I could have missed it. Somewhere in with the takeout menus in the old phone bills, there is a letter from Dr. Martin Luther King we haven't found yet. So this, you know, people think that this is some kind of scholarly exercise, but it is a, an endeavor for patience. As curator of the P.K. Young Library of Florida History, James Cusick is overseeing the processing of Stetson Kennedy's papers and other materials. Cusick is thrilled to have this extensive collection. And it runs all the way from the time he was a high school student up until practically the month of his death in 2011. Uh, and it's an in, it's incredible um, compendium stuff. Uh, um, uh, right now we're just looking at the articles that he wrote. And I knew that uh, Stetson Kennedy was pretty prolific. You can tell that just by the number of books that he's written the places where he published and the number of articles he published and the number of topics he wrote about is it's really mind-boggling i mean he, uh during his years in europe in the 1950s he was being published all over the place we have publications from paris we have publications in russian about um racial violence in the american south he was writing for the news agency for the official uh newspaper in china um uh, so I mean his I mean his work really was and his uh, 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 his ideas about uh, the American South were really widespread maybe more widespread and better known in Europe for a long time than they were in here in the United States. Stetson Kennedy's social activism and the books that came from it have made him a Florida icon. In an interview that aired on Florida Frontiers in 2009, Stetson Kennedy explained that his career began in 1937 with the WPA Florida Writers Project. At the age of 21, he was named head of the Unit on Folklore, Oral History, and Socio-Ethnic Studies. Well, it was the Great Depression for one thing, and I didn't have a job along with tens of millions of other Americans. And... Uh, at the same time, President Roosevelt had organized something called the Federal Writers Project, and I thought this would be an opportunity for a 21-year-old uh, to start a writing career. So I signed up for the Florida Writers Project, and in a short time they did uh, elevate me to the, that position. I was wearing three hats. Uh, Zora Neale Hurston, as a matter of fact, was uh, my, I was her boss. She was not an easy one to boss, I can tell you. She fortunately worked out of her home in Eatonville, and I was in Jacksonville, so it was like that. Still, it was Hurston's lack of emphasis on racial difficulties that inspired Stetson Kennedy to make the issue a focal point of his work. Do free association with me and Zora, the first thing I think of is a little story she sent in. said one day God was on his way to Palatka, and him and St. Peter was hoofing it. And it went on from there. <laughs> so everything she sent in was a, a real jewel. Uh, Alan Lomax was also a good friend of mine and colleague, and he said that in the field Zora was absolutely magnificent. He was recording in Eatonville with Zora in as early as 35, and they went on out to the Everglades and then to the Georgia Sea Islands. Yeah, Zora was, was a mess. 
uh, our politics uh, are very different. Uh, uh, she never turned in any black po protest law, for example. And of course, that was one of the very few forms that the blacks could protest. If it didn't rhyme and you didn't dance a jig the while, you were dead. Uh, but Zorro chose to ignore all that stuff, and so I made it one of my specialties. From 1937 to 1942, Stetson Kennedy lugged around a recorder the size of a coffee table to record the oral histories, tall tales, and folk songs of a diverse group of Floridians from cracker cowboys to Greek sponge divers to turpentine industry workers. Actually, it was a precursor to the uh, wire recorder came uh, next uh, before the tape recorder. And this recorder was like a, a coffee table, except it took two or three good men to lift it. When we wanted to go out on the railroad tracks or on the pogey fishing boats, uh, we had to get some manpower, and it was uh, on the tracks. It was powered by two automobile batteries. So that's, that's what we had to work with. I called it the thing. The recordings that Stetson Kennedy made in the cities, towns, and rural backwoods of Florida led to the classic 1942 book, Palmetto Country. This important social history of Florida is being republished by the Florida Historical Society Press with a new afterword and 80 historic photographs. That was one of the first volumes in the American Folkways series, edited by Erskine Caldwell. And uh, we really pioneered in oral history. No one had ever heard of it at, up at that time, talking about 1935 and 6. I recall here in Titusville, uh, I, I was interviewing an elderly black man, this is a later period, and I um, happened to mention the moonshot. And he said, you don't believe that stuff, do you? And uh, I said, well, you know, uh, he says, it's just some more of that BS the government puts out. <laughs> it was an exciting, uh, you know, field to be in. We, we had a lot of fun. Like, like kids on a treasure hunt, really. As a pioneer of oral history, Kennedy is pleased to see how the field has advanced in recent decades. Yes, uh, just recently at the Library of Congress, uh, they've launched something called StoryCorps, in which these streamlined uh, sound studios on wheels uh, are touring the country and uh, taking oral histories uh, from coast to coast. And they uh, honored me with letting me kick it off with an interview. And yes, indeed, it's come, come a long way. I, I'm a great believer in oral history because uh, I call it the dictatorship of the, the footnote. The, the academicians uh, are quoting each other you know, instead of uh, going out and getting first-hand primary source material. And oral history, of course, is a participant and a witness, at least. And uh, they're, they're seeing it with all their sensory organs. And for that reason, it, it has more validity from my point of view. Some historians argue that oral histories are sometimes less reliable than more traditional research sources because people's memories are not always accurate. Kennedy believes that the best history comes from the recollections of everyday people. It's uh, uh, being there and uh, telling history from the bottom up is, of course, history. It's the little man that makes history and not the generals. And uh, so I like to hear from the little man. Folk musician Woody Guthrie, best known for the song This Land is Your Land, was a big fan of Stetson Kennedy's work. Guthrie spent many of his last years living in Kennedy's house in Beluthahatchee Park. I recall Guthrie saying at one time, uh, Stetson's not exactly a folklorist, he's a po-focused. 
uh, by which he meant, uh, I suppose, a champion of the poor, uh, one of the folk, and not writing from, from some other point of view. Yes, Woody, I uh, spent a lot of time at my place up in St. John's County. And in fact, we just discovered 80 plus songs that he wrote in St. John's County, uh, all about my place and uh, the wildlife. And uh, I remember one song called Baby Buzzard. Says, Baby Buzzard, uh, look over yonder in that limousine, some of the rottenest stuff you ever seen. And <laughs> So on, 80 songs here in Florida, and it was all new material for Woody. He was writing about, he'd pick up manuscripts. I was overseas, but he'd pick up my manuscripts and ended up writing, turning them into songs. And things like Chain Gang and Peonage and Sweat Boxes and things Woody had never thought about before. Uh, he made songs out of them. It was Stetson Kennedy's infiltration of the Ku Klux Klan and other white supremacist groups that earned him national and international recognition. Using the name John Perkins, Kennedy was able to secretly gather information that helped lead to the incarceration of a number of domestic terrorists. These experiences led to the 1954 book, I Rode with the Klan, which was later republished as The Klan Unmasked. I spent a lot of time in front of the mirror, you know, practicing the N-word and things like that. Uh, I didn't really have the face for it. In fact, I almost got killed. Uh, an interviewer came down from New York and I cautioned him about, you know, uh, blowing my cover. But he goes back and writes about this intense young man with a poet's face. And that almost got me killed. <laughs> there weren't that many of them in the Klan. As racial tensions were rising in the United States in the 1950s, Kennedy was having difficulty getting his books exposing bigotry published. The French existentialist philosopher Jean-Paul Sartre, best known for the play No Exit, published Kennedy's book The Jim Crow Guide in Paris in 1956. I first uh, infiltrated uh, during the war when the Klan was afraid that uh, President Roosevelt might uh, prosecute them under the War Powers Act. So they didn't put on their robes and they changed their names to various things like uh, American Shores Patrol and American Gentile Army and things like that. So that's how it all began. And yes, it's, it was exciting to put it mildly. Uh, when I went overseas some years later, I thought I'd get away from my nightmares, you know, being caught. But in Paris, it was raining frequently and the French traffic cops wore white rubber raincoats with capes and hoods, and their hand signals were very much like the Klan signals, so I kept on having nightmares. Although he never forgot his roots as a native Floridian, born in Jacksonville on October 5, 1916, Stetson Kennedy did choose to live abroad for about a decade. Well, McCarthy was going on. Uh, Eisenhower was president, and he was, as presidents go, he wasn't all that bad. But there was McCarthy. And um, no, I went over to testify about slave labor uh, in the United States uh, before the United Nations in Geneva. And I went with a one-way ticket and eight dollars left over. So I was pretty much obliged to stay until I could, <laughs> and it took me eight years, so to speak, to raise the round trip home. Uh, during which time I saw most of Europe and North Africa and uh, across Eastern Europe as far as China. I was, I think, the first 
uh, independent journalist to get into China in '54, uh, I believe it was. Harry T. Moore was an educator and civil rights activist who founded the Progressive Voters League, registering tens of thousands of African American voters in Florida. He was a statewide leader of the NAACP and fought for equal treatment for African Americans in the justice system. Before he was killed when a bomb exploded under his home on Christmas night, 1951, Harry T. Moore endorsed Stetson Kennedy's campaign for the U.S. Senate. Well, I recall uh, being here in the Titusville area. I came back. Uh, Moore was blown to pieces on Christmas night of 1951, which he and his wife had blown through the roof, uh, mattress and all. Uh, I came back a decade or so later riding around talking to people to Mims, Florida, where it happened. And there was this elderly black man sitting under a shade tree, and I walked up and asked if he remembered uh, the night. And he said, uh, remember? How could I ever forget? Stetson Kennedy died on August 27, 2011. His papers and other collected materials are now housed at the University of Florida in Gainesville. An event called Stetson Kennedy Reimagining Justice in the 21st Century will be held Tuesday, October 22nd at 6 p.m. in Pew Hall at the University of Florida. The panel discussion includes folklorist Peggy Balger, historian Marvin Dunn, and niece of Zora Neale Hurston, Lucy Ann Hurston. Find us a peace job, equal and free, will dumb matters do pop in a salty sea, will this make Stetson Kennedy? This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. Visit us on the web at myfloridahistory.org to find out about upcoming events, listen to archived editions of this program, and much more. Hit the Join Now button to receive our journal, the Florida Historical Quarterly, and our newsletter, the Society Report. That's myfloridahistory.org. This is Florida Frontiers. Joining us now is Ben DiBiase, Educational Resources Coordinator for the Florida Historical Society and Archivist at the Library of Florida History in Cocoa. Ben, Francis P. Fleming was governor of Florida in the late 19th century, but before that he served the Confederate Army in the Civil War. That's right. Uh, Francis P. Fleming was the 15th governor of Florida. He served from uh, 1889 to 1893. Uh, he was born in 1841 in Panama City, Florida, uh, which uh, Panama Park, Florida, excuse me, which is now part of Jacksonville, uh, and lived on a plantation there until the uh, Civil War in 1861 uh, when he enlisted in the Confederate Army at the uh, age of 20. And you have a letter here that Francis P. Fleming wrote just after the Battle of Gettysburg. Yeah, this is really interesting. Fleming was, uh, he volunteered and, and was uh, um, uh, rolled in with the 2nd Florida uh, Infantry Company, which fought with the Army of Northern Virginia. So they weren't fighting in Florida. He actually spent time uh, in, the, uh, in the Northeast, in Virginia, fighting with Lee's Army. And they were actually involved in the Battle of Gettysburg. And we have a letter that uh, Francis P. Fleming wrote home to his brother back in Florida, uh, dated, it's actually two letters. One is written um, 
just prior to the battle, June 30th, uh, 1863. The second half of the letter uh, is actually written Ju- July 7th, 1863. And he mentions that, uh, you know, he didn't have time to, to write in between because of the battle. And, and you can see that the, the writing is very frantic. He used up every inch of this scrap of paper, um, which goes to show you how scarce the paper was. Um, but what's really fascinating is his description of the battle. Um, and he mentions the, uh, the role of the Florida soldiers. But at the very beginning of the letter, uh, dated July 7th, just after Gettysburg, um, he says, uh, quote, We have had, since my first date, probably the fiercest and most bloody battle of the war, just beyond and around Gettysburg, Pennsylvania. And he goes on to describe the first day of battle. But what's really interesting is the second day, he says, Our brigade, our brigade was under, uh, under attack and was sent in again and charged under murderous fire. But they were again compelled to retire. Our loss in the fighting of the second and third days was very heavy. Our brigade that numbered nearly 700 before now numbers only 160. Uh, Seton, who was uh, Fleming's brother, was so fortunate as to go through both fights and escape unheard. So he was writing to his his, uh, older brother, telling him, hey, our younger brother's okay. Wow. Now, uh, also among his papers is a a muster roll and payroll from the Civil War. That's right. Uh, Prior to Gettysburg, uh, Fleming was was promoted to a quartermaster general, so he kept the uh, the muster and payrolls. And we have about 20 of these payrolls that range from 1861 up through about 1864. Um, and this particular one we're looking at uh, dates to just before Gettysburg, um, for the period from from January 1st to February 28th, 1863. And it lists all the non-commissioned officers, um, one of which is is Francis P. Fleming. What's really interesting is that it lists the pay. And for this about a two month period, it says here that Fleming was paid $42 <laughs> for, uh, for, his, for his role in the uh, uh, fighting. Wow, 20 bucks a month to participate in the Civil War. That's amazing. Well, thanks a lot, Ben. Sure, thank you. Ben DiBiase is Educational Resources Coordinator for the Florida Historical Society and Archivist at the Library of Florida History in Cocoa. Can get a letter from home This is Florida Frontiers. Florida's infamous Groveland rape trial in 1949 has been the focal point of several critically acclaimed books over the past 15 years or so. Robert Casanello from robertcasanello.com talks with Gilbert King, the 2013 Pulitzer Prize-winning author of the latest book, Looking at the Trial. I thought it would be just really interesting to look at his life, but instead of doing a broad biography, just through the lens of just one criminal case and just to see how he acted. That's Gilbert King speaking about Thurgood Marshall and his participation in the infamous Groveland Four case. The Groveland Four case, often referred to as Florida's Little Scottsboro, was a criminal case from Lake County that involved four young black men accused of raping a white woman and beating her husband. The case not only brought national attention to the civil rights movement in Florida, but included activists such as Thurgood Marshall and Harry T. Moore, as well as Willis McCall, the racist sheriff who inspired countless Hollywood television shows and movies. In the spring of 2013, Mr. King was awarded the Pulitzer Prize for nonfiction for his book, Devil in the Grove, Thurgood Marshall, The Groveland Boys, and The Dawn of a New America. I was lucky enough to sit down with Mr. King when the book was first published. What you're about to hear is an excerpt 
from an interview I conducted with Mr. King about his inspiration and findings while conducting research for Devil in the Grove. Could you tell us a little bit about how you got onto this research in the first place? Sure. I was working on my past book, which was called The Execution of Willie Francis, and it was a case about a uh, young 16-year-old boy who was convicted of murder, sent to the electric chair, and uh, the electric chair did not work. The uh, executioners were drunk at the time, and they didn't hook it up properly. And so Willie Francis survived his own execution, and they didn't quite know what to do with him, and it became a very big Supreme Court case in the late 40s. And as I was looking through a lot of Supreme Court records, I came across Thurgood Marshall's involvement in this case and how he was sort of handling the publicity and handling the strategy, even though he wasn't representing this kid. And I just was very impressed with the things that he was doing. He was very much about uh, controlling the media and, 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 and doing things public relations-wise that were sort of ahead of his time, I thought. And so I started looking through more and more of Marshall's work, and I, I came across this Groveland case, which was the same thing, ultimately. He was doing a lot of work behind the scenes, political channels, celebrities, uh, religious channels, to sort of save the lives of you know, condemned men. And as I started looking more, in, more into this case, I thought, wow, this is beyond that. This is a pretty dramatic story. And as I understand it, you were able to find documents that had never been seen by scholars or journalists. Right. Can you tell me a little bit about how that helped to form the uh, opinion you had of the Grove and Four case? Yeah, that was an important moment because um, the NAACP has these legal defense fund files, which are basically the, the lawyer's notes and all the records for the law cases. And um, since Thurgood Marshall died, um, these records really hadn't been looked at. A lot of scholars had tried to get in there, but they're, they're held at the Library of Congress, but they're, and they're already um, documented and sort of cataloged but they're not um, ready to be seen by the public. And, and it's not a public entity or where you, know, you can file a Freedom of Information Act. You really have to get permission from the NAACP. And that, that took me a couple of years. I think what, what was able, why, why I was able to get in there was that I had a fairly limited scope. I only wanted to see the Groveland records. I wasn't looking to see all the Brown versus Board and all these, because they required legal vetting. And so the LDF had to send an attorney in there and and look at all these records before I got to see them. And that, that's a very expensive process. Did this help to um, give you a different perspective on the Groveland Four than what people wrote about previously? I think so. I think what it, what it really helped me is that it was sort of like being a fly on the wall within some of the strategy meetings. And, and they were minutes taken from the meeting with Thurgood and his associate counsel where they were saying, what should we do about this? Maybe we should send them out on a tour and sort of raise publicity. They were really trying to raise money through this case. I thought it really opened up a lot of just the, the, the behind-the-scene words that, that Thurgood Marshall and his counsel were saying to each other why they couldn't pursue certain strategies. And I thought that was interesting because it really involved all the players within this case. Was there any document that surprised you as far as its accuracy or its lack of accuracy? Uh, there was one particular document that I thought was interesting, um, and this, this got get right down to the case. Uh, after Willis McCall had shot the two prisoners, um, Willis McCall had taken a lot of public heat that, you know, maybe this was murder. Maybe this wasn't really these guys had jumped him and tried to escape. Maybe it was murder. And uh, it, was, it was getting a little bit out of hand in the media. And at one point I found a document that it was a letter sent to Thurgood Marshall uh, by another NAACP attorney in Florida who said that he just met with the assistant district attorney. And the assistant district attorney was accusing the state attorney of being complicit in the murder of these two men. And what, what Marshall dismissed it immediately. He said, I know who, exactly who that was, and I know why he did that. He's trying to lessen the impact on McCall by making it a more broader investigation. And at the time, uh, 
Willis McCall was fighting with the state attorney. So he was really sort of trying to drag the state, state attorney into the case, you know, in the most immoral way. And so Marshall dismissed it, but he didn't deny that it happened. That was Gilbert King, and I'm Robert Castanello with Florida Frontiers. You've been listening to Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. Please join us right here again next week. You can always visit us on the web at myfloridahistory.org and get a daily update about Florida history by liking our Facebook page at Florida Historical Society. Have a great week. I'm Ben Brokemarkle. Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and by the Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in the Historic O'Galley section of Melbourne, Florida. It's also made possible by Florida's Space Coast Office of Tourism, representing destinations from Titusville to Cocoa Beach to Melbourne Beach.